This is Philosophy versus Improv, where two sages try to teach each other a thing or two, and maybe you, the audience, get something out of it as well. Hello, this is Bill Arnett, an improv instructor, ready to be a philosophy instructee. Well, this is Mark Linsemeyer, a philosophy instructor. I don't know if I'm ready to be an instructee. It's too passive. It's too receptive. It's too vulnerable position, but I'll, I'll work on it. I'm ready to think about being an instructee. We have two guests today. Which one of you normally introduces yourself first? So I normally introduce myself first in the show. So my name is Mark Oppenheimer, and I run Brandon Vat with Jason. Hi, everyone. I'm the Jason. And yeah, I'm Mark's co-host on Brandon Vat. Great to be here. What is your speech impediment that you sound so funny? Mark, where are you talking to us from? I'm just, I'm just pointing out the novelty of this. Yeah, so we're both in South Africa. I'm going to keep wow. asking you indiscriminately both questions. Because you should know how to steer around yourselves by now, each other. I think you might be our first intercontinental guests. A whole other hemisphere. And you're going to get us in stereo throughout this episode as you ask uh, (laughs) questions that don't target us. It's going to be a very novel experience for all of us. (laughs) Did I actually invite both of you? Or like, no, if I'm going to have one of you, you have to both come because it's a package deal. I think you invited both of us. I put plans off for tonight. Well, I knew it was coming. I'm not saying one of you is unwelcome here. It was a while before I was open to that possibility because moving parts, you insert one moving part, that usually works well. Insert two moving parts, what do you do? But you guys are a well-oiled machine. Have you, has either of you spent time doing improvisation, theater, comedy, anything in the neighborhood of, of the thing that's out of your comfort zone here? I've done something a little bit close to it. So you might've heard of The Moth um, and their format was that you'd have people coming and telling uh, real stories in 10 minutes. And so Jason and I signed up for a course. Um, I think Jason found the whole thing rather terrifying and dropped out kind of early. I stuck around <laughs> and did it. Um, so I really like the idea of improv theater. And it's what I tell all our guests. I say, this is what the show is. We're going to do improv philosophy. We're not scripting anything. We're going to have a magical discussion about ideas and go. So I gather you get to do things that are actually funny. Are you asking if we get to do things that are funny? Yeah. Fingers crossed. You know, I don't want to be, uh, <laughs> I think people enjoy our show, Mark. Do people enjoy the show? I think we're running into, Mark is the keeper of all the comments. I don't know if how you guys split up the comments and feedback to your show. If everyone is privy to it, but Mark L here in, in the USA is the owner of that. So I'm presuming people are enjoying the show. Maybe the problem here is that I need to get these terms straight that do you get to do things that are funny is an achievement term. Right? Does it actually accomplish being funny? But a term of categorization or intent, yes, we're in the, the comedy subgenre in iTunes, so low on those rankings. I'm oh, sure we are? We, no, again, I did not we know that. We never the, ever show up as far as I We're not aware. in the philosophy genre? We are Mark? primarily in the philosophy genre where okay. we have charted in Fiji, as you know. All right. All right. Um, <laughs> Jason, say a little few words about brain in a vat before we get going here. Yeah, so Brain of is not aiming at comedy, although there are funny moments. Our goal is to explore an idea. So we always start every show with a thought experiment. So a guest comes on the show, we ask them to start with a thought experiment or a case from real life, and then we ask them questions about that, that case. And it's a combative show, so we <laughs> try to prove each other wrong, but not for the sake of proving each other wrong, sort of for the sake of of exploring the the issue. And we often just switch positions. Um, so it's really just to try and reach the truth. It's the kind of philosophy, I think, Mark, that you really don't like. <laughs> it's analytic <laughs> philosophy with a, the goal of reaching the truth with a capital T. That's cool. That's fun. This show also 
combative. We're constantly, I'm trying to just prove that improvisation, comedy, worthless pursuits, no one should even bother. Bill is just constantly trying to show that philosophers don't know what they're talking about. They're completely full of shit. And, uh, but you too will decide at the end of this process from the topic, the one sentence topic that I shared with you in advance that I brought in and the, uh, no doubt pages and pages of lesson plan that Bill has brought in, which of those two things and hence which of the two areas is victorious, at least in this particular day, in this particular moment. I think the thing we all share is that if we were 18 and telling our parents that we were going to pursue philosophy and or improv and or podcasting, our parents might roll their eyes a little bit. Maybe we'll get a a mime on, a juggler, some other people that are similarly shunned by their parents. Yeah. (laughs) Do you guys have any questions? Do you have a thought experiment? Yeah. So every episode of Brand of we ask our guests to start with a thought experiment. And so we've been exposed to like about 150 of them over the years. And uh, it's a magical little thing because basically you get to capture a philosophical notion in about a minute and a half with a narrative device in it. I'll tell you the first experiment ever told on the show. It's one that your listeners may have heard of. It's called the trolley problem. Sure. So imagine this. You are a conductor on a train and uh, the train is hurtling along. And on the tracks, you can see five comedians that are tied up. Kill them. And yeah, if you do nothing, you're going to hit these comedians, right? And on the other side of the track is Socrates, you know, and you've got to decide, do you hit the switch or not, you know? And the question is, whose life matters the least? I mean, you've got basically two categories of people who are despicable. Parents don't like them at all. (laughs) And the question is, can you hit the switch back and forth that you hit both sides? Well, let me just say, I think their parents love them. They just wish they made other choices. How about that? (laughs) Now, as my Mark might know, I actually solved the trolley problem. It has a solution. And that is you do switch the tracks after the first pair of wheels has crossed the switch. So you kill both, yeah? Well, no, it derails and everybody's fine. So some versions of the trolley problem, there's people in the trolley too, to try and avoid that solution. Well, I mean, they're, they're just, hold on, you know, allow me to win. That's all I'm saying. Also, I've seen on Bugs Bunny cartoons that if a vehicle's about to crash and you know it's going to crash, you can just step out right before it crashes and you're fine. There's some physics involved there, but I wouldn't worry about it. (laughs) By the way, this is exactly why you can see the difference between philosophers and like normal people. Normal people will try everything they can to get outside of the case to avoid the application of reason. Philosophers are like, yeah, we totally accept this. Yeah, exactly. A normal person. Okay. (laughs) And that's a good thing. It's definitely good to be normal. We just had a guest on our show, Rivka Weinberg, who said, She can't stand all these philosophers in their cases. She said, yeah, we should just be normal people and realize that the world is not like that. It's more complicated and we can always find a way. I think I would have less people die. (laughs) You would push the fat man over. That's the sort of short version. Yes. Even if it means that I did something to cause death, me not doing something is the same as me doing something. So I would try to kill fewer people. So Mark, you're okay with having a murderer as a co-host? I mean, I've gotten used to it over the years with Jason, but that's quite I, just, a while. I thought originally you said less people and then you corrected yourself and said fewer. I thought you meant, you know, the less lesser the, people, the less people, the less, yeah. we can kill the less people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who's not as pretty? Who's not as interesting? And you have uh, hit on this morning. I realized or last night that I had not talked to these boys about a topic. I said, based on the discussions with them, the he- hearing them many times. We should talk about rationality, just broadly construed and what that means. And we've already talked in other contexts about how in economics or cold calculated rationality, 
that the answer to the trolley problem in terms of you might think reason would tell you, you just have to count up the people and of course do whatever is going to benefit the most people. And if your emotions or if your squeamishness, I don't want to be the one to pull the lever. I want somebody else to pull the lever. You know, anything that would detract from that is, is merely irrational, is introducing an extraneous concern. It's very interesting problems around rationality and philosophy. Are they like problems around rationality and economics? So should we just bean count people and say that as a whole, people always behave rationally? So one of the interesting questions that philosophers have asked is, is rationality systematically misleading, at least some of the time? So could we all be irrational most of the time? Is it possible that our beliefs are generally wrong? Or must it be the case that we've got it mostly right, even if we get a few wrong? Bill, are you mostly wrong? Can we be rational? Is it even physically possible in our genetic makeup to be rational all the time? Yeah. Is it possible to be rational all the time? And some philosophers ask, is it possible to be irrational all the time? So a question is, if you were irrational all the time, would you survive at all? And would our species survive? So some philosophers think that because of evolution, we would never have evolved. We would never have survived to have systematically irrational beliefs. So it must be the case that we most of the time write about stuff. Yeah. I know plenty of ir- irrational people who get lucky. It is such a complicated world out there and it ain't getting any simpler. I mean, how often do we actually take the time to realize, are we being rational or irrational in all of our choices? Does the rational choice not make us happy? And in this moment, after a miserable experience just happened to us emotionally, do we want to be irrational because of the irrational choice is the chocolate cake choice? I mean, not to mention, you know, can we be rational without complete data? And is one person's rational highly irrational in someone else's framework who has more complete data or less complete data. It strikes me that there can be a lot of confusion with using the term <laughs> that if rationality is to get from point A to point B, sure, there's still a separate question as to what are the good destinations to aim at and what are your values. So for example, if you said, I'm in pain mm-hmm. and one way to alleviate that pain is to you know eat a, a jar of chocolate syrup outside of a bowl, and it will actually have that effect, then it's perfectly rational to do so. You might have other aims like not dying of diabetes and that eating the bowl of chocolate is going to you know, hasten that. And so now there's a question as to, well, which rational path do you take? Which one matters more? And that seems like an open question. So you could say, well, actually, my immediate suffering now is well worth alleviating, and I can take other measures down the line to ensure that I don't die an early death. And so you can accommodate these things. But it's not that there is a rational way to behave. There's a rational way to behave based on what it is that you value. I think often we talk about is self-interest. Define irrational then. To not do that. So in other (laughs) words, if you are aiming at a particular outcome and it's known what would get you there and then you don't do that, that seems irrational. What might be going on is that an outsider looks at what you're doing and says, that seems irrational given what you've told me you want. But actually, they are doing something rational. In other words, they're just aiming at something else that's maybe is uh, hidden to third parties, but it's known to them. Could I come up with some framework where my seemingly irrational thing, I can rationalize it? I mean, there's a lot of therapists making lots of money as people rationalize their way through life, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so rationalization as a defense mechanism is interesting because rationalization is about fooling yourself into thinking that you have goals that you actually don't have, or at least not your primary goals. So let's say you eat the cake and you say, it's perfectly rational because I'm trying to feel better. And your therapist will say, no, that's just rationalization. What you actually care about is self-harm. What you're actually wanting to do is harm yourself. Sure. And so 
the therapist will say, that's your actual goal. What you're doing is you're fudging what you think the goal is. Sure. Well, I think your mark just said, (laughs) if you want to self-harm, and this is a ready way to do it. So it's actually very rational for you to do that. There's interesting questions around meta-rationality. So you've got rationality, oh, so you've boy. got this goal to hurt yourself, and then you've got this desire to fulfill the goal, and then you do it. So you go and eat the cake and you hurt yourself. Okay, great. So you seems rational. But is it rational to have that goal? And there the question is, would that goal be good for you? That's how some philosophers determine whether something is rational or not. So There's two elements to rationality. The one is beliefs and the other one's desires. So the question is, are your desires for things that are good for you and are your beliefs true? And if you've got both of those, then you've got a rational reason for acting. But if you're missing one, then that's say you're acting irrationally. So in the case of the cake, you've got this rational reason to eat the cake, but it's irrational to want to harm yourself. And so perhaps on a meta level, so about the rationality, it's not, it's not rational. Although we can imagine this case, so it's World War I, you are with a whole bunch of friends who you've been in the war with since 1914, it's now 1917, and a grenade gets lopped over into your trench. And you look at these guys and you realize that they're all going to die. But because you're a heavyset man, you could jump on the grenade and it will destroy you, but all of them will survive. So given your immediate interest, which is protect my friend's lives, you are doing something rational. It's clearly not in your interest to do so because you will be extinguished by it. But we might think that some desires that are altruistic and self-sacrificing are rational desires to have, even if they're not in your interest, and that the move of jumping on the grenade is the rational thing to do. And the move of eating the cake is the rational thing to do because you want to be in a situation where you are heavyset enough to jump on the grenade. <laughs> somehow, in the trenches of World War I, you somehow managed to scroll away calories. <laughs> wow. That's the least you could do is jump on that grenade. Bill, can you start us off on some sort of... uh Maybe just new for this episode, uh, some sort of scene. We sure can. Now, I'm not sure how much improv y'all have done, uh, your Mark and, and Jason, but the style that Mark and I like to do, it's very slice of life. It's very real people in real situations. Now, real, quote unquote, turn on the news. You're going to see some amazingly ridiculous real people. So it's like, you know, the world's crazy and we don't need to think about it. We can just be people and let some absurdities grow and, and exist. Now with four people, and this might be a little bit of the improv lesson. Sometimes Mark and I will kind of keep our lessons secret and try to see if the other person can divine them for what happens. But Mark, with your blessing, I think maybe we should let the cat out of the bag a little bit. Do it. Jason, you're, I'm saying Mark O, nod about letting the cat out of the bag. <laughs> I think Mark O is a good way to, we're going to just call him Mark O. To distinguish him from me. Marco! Like I'll become Italian in the moment. Yes. (laughs) But the idea is this. Even in conversations with the four of us are having now, or or if you're hanging out with friends or whatnot, you may be four different people, and you may have different wants and different rationals and irrationals. But in a particular moment, generally everyone feels one of two ways. They are happy with what's going on, or they are unhappy with what's going on. They want this conversation to continue. You know, we're in the car on a road trip. And Mark L. had a hot date last night, and we want to know the details of the hot date, but Mark L. does not want to talk about them. He's embarrassed or shy, doesn't want to jinx it. It went really well, and he doesn't really feel that if he talks too much about it, he'll, he'll jinx it. I really want to know what happened on this. Are you day. writing in my scene? Is this what's- <laughs> In another context, at another point, where we, need to, we need to stop and go to the bathroom. Now, of course, I'm the one who really needs to pee, and the rest of you are upset with me because you don't need to pee, and you want to keep plowing on the road trip. We got a lot, of, a lot of road ahead of us. So the idea is this. What makes things complicated sometimes in improv scenes when you have more than two people 
is that this idea that we suddenly have lots of competing points of view and competing wants and needs. And oh boy, Mark will certainly know from me. I always feel like, well, we shouldn't have competing points of view because from moment to moment to moment, we generally fall into two categories. So what I would love to do now, and we can split this up however we want, but for the four of us, I want to be here right now, or I don't want to be here right now. And between the four of us, those two points of view will be the only ones covered. Careful switching teams. I understand there may be an impetus to switch teams. You are allowed to switch teams, but we need to see that process. We need, there needs to be a journey to switching teams, if that makes sense. Which, again, true in life as well. So that's, that's all we're trying to do. Does that make some sense? Yeah. I'll get this thing rolling. And if we can all just say, like, I want to be here, this is a good thing, or I don't want to be here, this is a bad thing. In the most general way you can conceptualize, I want to be here or I don't want to be here, or however you want to conceptualize those things. And I'll get this thing going. Mark, you ready? Are all Marks and Jason's prepared? I so don't want to <laughs> be here as Mark that I'm changing my screen name to Alf. Alf. Okay. There Fair for... enough. <laughs> uh, my Mark is now Alf. Okay. Uh, hey, everybody. Thanks for helping me move. This is really, we'll get beer and pizza when we get to my new place, but this is like a huge help. Thanks a ton. Look, dude, we met like three hours ago at a glory hall, and I just feel like you've just supersized this relationship into a ridiculous notion. I mean, we had one magical moment, and now you want me to move your couch. I feel like it's a little bit, I feel like I've been lied to by being brought here. Okay. I also had a magical moment. That was really nice. You don't have to, if you want to cruise, I get it. But I mean, I'll buy beer and pizza for everybody. We just got to move this sofa. I was going to say, I don't want to be here, but after I hear where you guys just came from, I think I do want to be here. <laughs> just to watch the fireworks. I don't know that I want to hear about the glory hole. Can we not talk about the glory hole? I, I would, I'd it like was to con- talk about It was couch. consensual. It was consensual. <laughs> There's always one bigot. There's always one hate monger who comes in to move a couch and then he just wants to ruin people's appetites for glory. I mean, I don't know how you deal with uh, this guy, Alf. He's like an alien, you know, like an alien from an 80s sitcom, just full of hate. Okay, Mark, I've got another buddy with a truck. Should be here any minute and we'll just get this thing on the truck and we can, we can be done. Beer and pizza. All right. Where are you going after this though? <laughs> that's what I, <laughs> that, that, well, my new place, my new place. It's on Sheridan and, and Irving Park. You guys are welcome in. We'll hang out a little bit or not. You can take your bean pizza to go or we can drink it there. This is a huge help to me. Huge help. I mean, I'm very in favor of moving the couch because I think you need some place that is not a hole to enjoy yourself. And so I just want to make this clear. I'm not a bigot against any activity or whatever people want to do. It's just the idea of holes in public places that I have a, have a serious problem with. And I do not want to hear any sort of reports, any encomiums praising the holes. You're more of a stylish kind of classy guy. You want like like an old school kind of bathhouse scene with marble floors and chandeliers and like Bette Midler singing in the background, you know. But I mean, we like a little bit of the grime, you know, the kind of keeping things a little bit rustic. You know, I don't know about this aesthetic two-dimensionality that you have here. By the way, bit of a problem with old Jason over here. Doesn't drink lactose intolerant. I feel like you got to offer him something better than beer and pizza. Yeah, this is why I was almost not wanting to be here. But yeah, the genesis of this and where it's going once it reaches your place, I think I might stick around. I, I mean, I, I can get something else for you. You know, I'm, I'm just thankful. It's a, it's a heavy, it's a sectional, overstuffed sectional couch. It's a big one. It's gonna take all of us. Tell me, man, what do you, what, what, what do you, we can get? So we can get another flavor of pizza. We need some breadsticks, some cider or wine. Focaccia is good. Yeah, cider and focaccia. Okay, all right, we're doing it. We're doing it. Alf, you on board here? I mean, as long as the pizza is whole free. Will you let let this drop? I mean, if the activity of loading the couch is defined by all this whole discourse, then I'm I'm just not sure if I'm 
on board. I, you're the one that. obsessed with this. You're the one who can't let this drop. Who can't let you want me to let your couch drop? In. Okay, look, there's, there's going to be holes everywhere you find. Okay, we open the back of that truck. There's going to be a giant hole where the door was to get this stuff in. Okay, and so as soon as you pick up that patch, we can do this without the uh, thin veneer of uh, bigotry. Alf, is that okay? I want to hear Mark's point about what are you saying that picking up the couch creates a vacuum under the couch and that's like a whole, what, what, where were you going with that? I was going to say, once you pick that couch up and you take the pillows off, you're going to see these uh, very particularly shaped holes inside those couch pillows and you're not going to want to touch the, the couch anymore. Okay. I'll accept that. Thank you for that information. How do you get through life, Alf? How do you, how do you get through life afraid of holes? Are you not tryptophania? I forget what the phobia is exactly, but yeah, it's a pine cone, like corn in the cob with pieces missing, that kind of stuff. It just instantly wigs me out. It's like a, it's a, it's a visceral thing. You have this whole thing, genuinely. It is something that uh, in certain films or certain Halloween costumes or certain candies, I might uh, be set into have some sort of panic attack because, but it's not all holes. You're right. Just an indentation is okay. I kind of want to push back a little bit because we only learned about this whole phobia the moment Mark O accused you of homosexual bigotry. All right. That was, that's what brought this on. Look, dude, I get it. It's gross to other people. All right. That's fine. All right. But just not come up with this defense mechanism of you. Oh, I'm just whole phobic out of nowhere. It does- you shouldn't be upset about the holes. The whole point of the glory holes to, to fill them. It's to plug those holes. You should be rush, rushing off to every glory hole you can find just so you can fill all the holes. Well, let's not. If this guy doesn't want to switch teams, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess that would be the rational thing to do. You're right. You're absolutely right. There's no homosexual bigotry just merely in the fear of holes. In fact, it would seem like it would go the opposite way because Men lack the substantial holes. You know what I mean. No, tell us. Tell us what you mean, Elf. Sometimes a couch, you know, it's just got a space between. I feel like putting everything in couch metaphors is maybe too artistic for this crowd. I'm starting to wonder about this generalized fear of holes. Because the last time I saw Alf, after we'd gone to a very classy bathhouse together, we were at a comic book convention, and I presented him with issue 24 of Mad Magazine, which on the front, has Alfred e. Newman, and he's got a big hole in his teeth. You know, he's missing a tooth. And Alf was like, this is amazing. You know, he wanted it. And I think either his lust for Alfred e. Newman overrides the fear of the holes, or this whole whole fiasco is just a whole load of bunk. I mean, Alfred e. Newman is pretty awesome. I, I'm, I'm sad about his passing. So do you not eat whole pizzas? Is that the... Do homophones carry weight in uh in fears phobias cross homophonic rationally they should not because you know it's a different word but irrationally yeah i you know any uh, i prefer parts Mm, slices of pizza with holes all around the sides you mean the absence of something i guess any absence is a hole everything's a hole every everything i mean there's an absence of someone next to you so there's a hole on the one side and then you could, you know, by extending the homophone thing, you could you could take the U as being a whole, as distinguished. I think maybe what we need here is an ontology that does not distinguish between individual things and says all of those differences are going to be subsumed into some greater unity so that all holes are merely apparent. A theodicy of holes, if you will. I mean, thank goodness that Jason's a pantheist. So he just thinks there is just one thing being pan. So, you know, this kind of gets around the whole problem. There's no holes in pan. Yeah. Pan is everything, even the holes. Y'all are still cool. Even in the pan pipes, no holes. 
No, no holes. Pan fills them all. But you all are still cool. Help me move this couch, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I thought we'd move past that. I mean, well, whatever you land on philosophically, we're cool. Helping me move the sofa. Awesome. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm here for the couch. Hey, let's stop right there. Not bad. Good fun. Was that easy? Hard? Everybody? Medium? It was about a about an angle of there. You know, we need to kind of get it up to there. <laughs> okay, that was about about three quarters. Ninety. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Easy enough to participate in. Whether yes. we succeed in being entertaining, always a mystery to me. Let me stop for a second and talk to you about another podcast. We're excited to feature a really funny podcast, perfect for anyone who hates censorship, called Bandcamp. B a n n e d. Hosted by the hilarious duo of Jennifer and Dan. Bandcamp is a comedy podcast where they read banned books and try to figure out why they were banned in the first place. This season, they're reading Harper Lee's classic To Kill a Mockingbird, one chapter at a time, out loud. If you think banning books is a slippery slope towards a not-so-great future, then Bandcamp is definitely the podcast for you. Whether you're like Jennifer and curious to read the book for the first time, or like Dan and a little too lazy to read it yourself, you'll love Bandcamp. It's a funny show and a great concept. So don't miss out on this one-of-a-kind podcast. Look for Bandcamp, that's band with two N's, on your favorite podcast player and subscribe today. Let's get banned together. I mean, this whole story about having a keeper of the comments. I mean, so Jason and I both get to see our comments. Jason will sometimes tell me he's deleted them because they're just full with such vitriolic, often anti-Semitic rage. And so I don't get a chance to see him. Is this like the relationship that you guys have where like Elf says, oh, no, there's all these great comments and people love us. Or there's just like no comments, just the void, just the nothingness. And you have to pretend that there's comments and carry that, carry that weight. Great question. You guys center on your primary thing is YouTube. The podcast is sort of the audio podcast is rather an afterthought. And so, yes, of course, that cesspool of, of viewers is going to have, have some things to say. Yeah, so we started off on YouTube and that was our main focus. And now the podcast has grown larger. But where do you get? comments on your podcast yeah few and far between they're emailed to us or they're on the blog post or something like that but yeah it's it's mostly a it's mostly a just, the, uh, just, the, the just enough content enough encouragement yeah. to keep going i mean what's what's the rationality of any comment especially especially a nasty comment you know or is that just mental illness on display i will say fortunately our viewers are generally like very highbrow so we get like long essays in there like counter views on the you know philosophical stuff it's about like 4% crazy kind of racist crud stuff, um, which YouTube tends to remove anyway. Like, so unfortunately we get people going, why did you delete my comments? And we didn't, you know, YouTube deletes it. But yeah, there's some really thoughtful people on our comment thread. This is maybe for all of us here, but like what percentage of comments are about the commenter? Does that make sense? Well, we have one guy who, <laughs> <laughs> who watches all of our episodes. I for a long time was convinced that it could only be a bot. He is described as the vegan vicar, I think is his, his like tag. All of his responses to whatever anyone writes is, are you vegan yet slave? And this is over and over and over again on our threads. Uh, we have another person who I've met in real life who makes it his life mission to be the first to comment on our episodes and we'll just write first. And the two of these guys got into a tussle. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but barring this, the comments are quite thoughtful. <laughs> well, but you're, you're asking what's the rationality of a comment because is it a rational response to the content? In other words, which you can just, should I comment at all? Yes. And then is it rational that they commented? Is it rational from their personal psychological point of view? Because many times I do ask myself, what were you thinking 
when you thought, you know what I'll do with my time? I'm going to start typing on this video on this. I'm going to send a letter <laughs> to something. How does that fit in your goals in life? And it seems like probably they're uh, neglecting something more important or they're probably not serving their own best interests. It is irrational in that sense. Jason met his first wife on the comment thread. You know, she basically said like, you know, screw you, you pencil neck dweeb. And he was like, I think I'm in love. So, you know, magical things can happen. If you, uh, you did say first wife, which means that it ended. Uh, it could be a bigamist. Don't be, don't be bigoted against bigamists. I grew. I added. I didn't replace. I grew after that. <laughs> I wonder if there are any bigamists out there who people confuse that they are bigoted and just get really defensive about that. All right. Bigamism and bigotry are different. I know the words are similar. They're almost homophones. Maybe in another language, the words are further apart and it would be easier. All right. Yeah. Bigamy ah. gets really bad press. Maybe that's why. Uh, yeah. <laughs> because it's a bigoted word. It should be polygamy because then bigamy is just like uh, only two. But don't you have to be like a big man to be a bigamist? You know, you got to be like, like our president has six wives. He was like the big man in town kind of vibe, you know? And I feel like, you know, if he was like a polyamorous, that would be like, one of these weak Western Greek notions on him, you know, he wants the like African big chief kind of energy, you know? Mm -hmm. So you're saying that it's okay to have a bunch of wives, just not love them. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, <laughs> okay, I, don't, right. I don't think you can love one wife, let alone six. I mean, let's be, you know, there's a <laughs> limits on how much, you know, you okay. capable of doing. <laughs> you said you were in favor of polygamy, but not polyamory. And I was just like, oh yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah, <laughs> those, yeah. Aren't, those aren't necessary. Remove components. all the rights of those women. Yeah. It can certainly exist without the other. What do you, yeah. You can have one wife and not love them. Gee whiz. You think you couldn't have six and not love them? I feel like YouTube might have rubbed off on you guys because somehow this discussion is going into a way that I feel like I have to apologize for to, for not having a woman on here or something, but I'm not clear enough about what's being said to see if it's offensive. How dare you? How dare you assume that all of us are men on the show? The levels of bigamy are just <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> The levels of bigamy? Uh, yes, I, th I think that should be used as a malpropism whenever you want to call somebody bigoted. <laughs> a bigamist, yeah. yeah. <laughs> when, it, when in doubt, if Mark says something, you can assume that it's offensive. He has to prove it's not before it's not. Sometimes a reverse onus is correct. Have you had any guests, given the variety of temperaments and given the combative nature of your show, that have cut off in a huff that have somehow said, the way this is going is not to my liking. You guys are clowns. I don't, I don't like what's being said and just hangs up. No, but we have had a guest uh -huh. recently where we wanted to hang up. <laughs> so yeah, generally the philosophers on our show are lovely, but we had someone who's not really a fully trained philosopher. He just dabbled in philosophy and he wrote a book on free will and he was on our show. And we realized very quickly that he didn't know what he was talking about. And oh no, I think that's the guy that I'm supposed to have on next. Seriously. So maybe <laughs> <laughs> I'll check with you afterward. Yeah. But in the end, yeah, it was a slog to get through the recording. But yeah, we didn't air it. It can happen, especially with non philosophers, that people get quite upset. Uh, it can happen. But I will say, I mean, having had 150 episodes on quite contentious topics, where we really make a point of disagreeing regardless of our own personal beliefs. I am just astounded at the philosophical method, at people are very polite. We have created some wonderful friendships through disagreement. Jason and I often famously say we agree on nothing. And there's a, 
a way that you can disagree that's just about the search for truth. And we talk about con- you know very controversial things. And I think it's okay to do that in a way that's polite, where you hold different views because you say, well, it's, if they're controversial, they're important often. And you want to know what everybody thinks on it without accusing them of you know being a bad person. As I say, with the philosophers, it, it never happens. Often you can have a strong debate. It can feel kind of heated at times. But afterwards, you know, we often do a little post chat with our guests. They love it. They come back. I think sometimes that detachment you're speaking of also might be a negative when it is used in other parts of life. Is there a name for that detachment, uh, kind of the philosophical? I can tell you people in relationships arguing with philosophers call it something like sociopathy. It's kind of like really rationally, calmly pointing out the problems with an argument works fine in an academic context, but yeah. not so great when you're arguing about who's going to keep the kids this weekend. Uh, or... uh, yes. <laughs> and in fact, could you say it's even unproductive to even have an academic contest? To have an academic discussion may as well be playing cards, you know? I mean, could you even make that point? That point has been made by a lot of people. I, I bet, mean, I bet, say, I'm sure. Yeah. So like, there's a whole philosophy of whether philosophy is valuable. Um, so <laughs> they might say something like, just by asking that question, you're doing philosophy. And so if you think the question is valuable, then you think philosophy is valuable. But also one way of cashing out the value of philosophy is not so much in terms of its uses, like building bridges or going to the moon. It's more about the enjoyment that the people get from it. I know this was my supervisor's view when I was studying philosophy. His view was, it's basically like intellectual masturbation, but it's fun. It's great. And we do it together and we have a great time. So that was his view on the value of it. It's a circle jerk in all the good ways. It's what not I like, you know? Creating a hole. Everybody can see each other. That's the problem with the glory hole. You need to. <laughs> all right. How can we maximally bro out this conversation for a second? Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Gee whiz. here. Do you want somebody else to start something? Or you- Alf, if you'd like to start one. And again, let's see if we can take this idea of being for or against uh, to be a little more diametric or just a little more obvious who's in which crew here. But I certainly enjoyed all your work prior. But let's see if we can take on that. Y'all just mentioned taking on the philosophy you may not agree with. So let's see if we can pick a lane here as Alf, my mark, gets this thing going. All right. We're all here for the Objectivist Club. Bill, you brought your friend. Do you want to introduce your friend? Uh, yeah. This is Jason. Uh, I brought Jason along. Jason, do you, have you had experience with objectivism in the past? Yeah, just all in the wrong ways. All right. Well, today we'll work that out. What, Bill, you seem a little less than enthusiastic. I, I thought you were the one who said we should start the Ayn Rand fan club, who said we should have banners with her picture on it. Or is that, is that sort of frippery, merely irrational? I turned 24 and realized I'm not an objectionist, you know. So, oh, you thought, um, oh, you thought this was the objectionist club. No, it's objectivist. It's, you know, the, Mark, do you want to re-explain to Bill, Mark, as president, what exactly we're talking about here in terms of being a rational person? I mean, I don't know why you didn't get the memo. There is one truth out there, which is you need to worship Anne Rand. She wrote the only good novel that's ever been written, Atlas Shrugged. She has two very big, important people who follow her, Jimmy Wells from Wikipedia. You know, I mean, could you live without Wikipedia? No, you couldn't. Could we train, train like ChatGPT to like, you know, destroy all of us without Wikipedia? No, we couldn't. So yeah, he's there. And Alan Greenspan, right? When America had an economy, it was run by Alan Greenspan. You know, and then all these non-objectivists took over and ruined the whole thing. 
So I think you need to kind of get in line here, buddy. Just because you're 26 now doesn't mean that you know you don't have to uh, follow the protocols of the elders of Van Rand. 24, Bill and I are 24. We turned 24, and the moment we turned 24, we knew it was all bullshit. <laughs> I brought him in to check this thing out to see how ridiculous this thing is. We can have a good laugh about it afterwards. Right. A, lo- a lot of the way people get into this is they don't want to give Christmas presents anymore. They say this is a bunch of bollocks, and I, I just I want to keep them all for myself. And so, you know, this is a philosophy that allows you to do that. To keep Christmas presents? That doesn't strike you immediately? They're really expensive, Alf. Yeah. Whose side are you on, Jason? (laughs) Very much yours, both. Okay. Yeah. You should, shouldn't we be giving Christmas presents? You wouldn't want to give those away. Yeah. Yeah. This is what we do. We give Christmas presents to our friends and family, right? Right. (laughs) What kind of a communist departs with their property by giving each other gifts on Christmas? I don't know about these pinkos that you've invited to us, you know, sacred club here, Alf. I think it's incumbent upon us. It's, it's irrational to, to spread the word and let them know that it's really in their interest, not only to pretend to have some sort of verbal accent that you don't, of a nation you don't come from, but also to then follow this philosophy that's actually quite divorced from human nature and claim that it is just part of everyone's rational self-interest. Did that make sense? No, not really. Look, um, my friends quit liking me. My family quit calling me. They said I was rude all the time. I magically had an answer for all situations in which I could just be lazy and make them do everything. And they just, they had enough and were like, we don't want you in our life if you're going to be like you this. You are an objectivist. You're already. I was. I'm talking about the history, oh, my oh, history. All right. All right. It sounds like it's already paying dividends. I mean, you don't have to speak to your parents anymore. Your friends were kind of dirtbags anyway. I mean, clearly this is a lifestyle that works. It yields results. It's in your rational self-interest to keep going. And now Bill keeps giving me Christmas presents. Like I come here. I mean, on Christmas, like giving you random Christmas, random presents. That would be strange. Why shouldn't I want to be part of my family? Why is it good that they're angry with me? Have you met Bill's mom? I mean, isn't it kind of obvious? All right. My mother is a saint. Okay. She is a wonderful person. <laughs> she can be difficult to get along with. That's not my fault. That's not anybody's fault. <laughs> so she's a sucker. That's what a saint is, according to the, this altruism, uh, altruistic uh, morality. If someone's who's, who's there, always there for you, giving you love and affection and Christmas presents, sucker. So it is useful to have people like that around if they don't make you too sick. I mean, if we all bought into that, wouldn't the world be a nice place? If we all gave unconditional love and acceptance and presence, wouldn't that be a good thing? World full of suckers does sound a little bit like a glory hole to me. On the one hand, there is the the instrumental rationality of being a parasite to being the only selfish person when everyone else is being altruistic. But on the other hand, that's aesthetically displeasing. It really would be better if everyone followed the model of Ayn Rand. And that would be the best possible because then everybody would be rationally looking out for themselves. They would keep in their lane. They wouldn't be constantly annoying you with all these demands, with these, you know, what is a gift but a a backhanded demand? Give me something in return. Well, these selfish and randians, selfish, selfish and randians. I mean, Bill, we have a great time giving each other Christmas presents, a great time exchanging all our, our earthly goods. We don't keep anything for ourselves. And I mean, look at us. We turned out great. I turned 24. I'm like, Jason? This is ridiculous. And enough of this, our friendship is not a transaction. It's a natural thing. Hanging out with you makes me happy. We went out to a bar, got some drinks, shot some pool, had a fun time. 
Yeah, and then the, the, the clock struck midnight, and we were like, "Yeah, this is this is what we're going to do. We're going to give each other stuff from now on." Yeah, non-transactionally. I'm seeing a bit of a mismatch in all that giving. I mean, I can see those lousy pieces of art that are hanging in Jason's house, and then I look at oh, those no, Bill, snazzy Bill headphones that you're wearing. Bill, Bill, exactly. Bill gave yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And look at the nice headphones you gave Bull. I mean, does that feel fair? Does that feel just? Does that feel equal? No. One of you got screwed, quite obviously. Jason, if you want to take down those paintings, go right ahead. <laughs> You're allowed to take them down. It won't hurt my feelings. Mark, I think Bill's just being uh, modest. Bill, can you show them your giant scar from where you gave the kidney to Jason? He didn't actually even need one from what I understood. It was just, it was a Christmas I present. I have three kidneys. What you shouldn't tell Bill is that I threw it out as soon as, as soon as he gave it to me. But yeah, it was, it was a lovely kidney. It was plump. It was, it was well-formed. Um, but yeah, don't tell him. That may have been a bad choice on my part. Let me just say that right now. That may have been giving too much of myself. I think wastefulness is irrational. And so, Jason, you're, you're as much at fault here. I would think if you don't need a kidney, try it as a new cuisine. It's respectful. Or a kidney bank. I don't know. There's got to be something. With some fava beans and a nice Chianti. I mean, you know, just ask your friend Hannibal. I'm not friends. I, I think ha- Hannibal, ha- did you not see Hannibal at the last meeting of the object- Objectivist Club? I mean, basically, it's a contest between who should be on the banners, whether it's Hannibal Lecter or Ayn Rand. I mean, if we're talking about pure self-interest, you know, in terms of winning at life, he's willing to take the risks, you know, to fight it out, to duke it out, to, to eat people alive, to come out on top. And I mean, I feel like this is a debate that Alpha and I have been having for a while is like Ayn Rand's been dead for a while. Hannibal Lecter eats the dead. He's clearly better. He should be on the banners. I, I don't think so. I, I think that's Nietzschean irrationality. It's got, it's got some of the, the self-interest part, which is good, but then it goes overboard. You gotta, you gotta recognize that you live in a society and there have to be rules. It turns out Alf's a commie, you know, community, society, I'm, I'm law, other law people matter. Order. Law and order. It's not enforced altruism. It's just saying you gotta have laws. You can't be eating people against their will. I don't know. That sounds like Anne is rolling in a grave. Can you hear her, Mark? Can you can you hear her rolling? Thrashing around. Yeah. I, Ayn Rand was not a cannibal. <laughs> mm. I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say she would not be in favor of eating people. I mean, if it was bad for your digestion or something, she wouldn't be in favor of it. But like, if it tastes good, other people don't matter, dude. Have you not read the memo? Like, come on. Yeah, it's all those prions that are the problem. But if you can get rid of the prions, if you don't eat the brain, you're good. I'm not sure if that's, uh, I would say Ayn Rand is a metaphorical cannibal. How about that? We can't have winners without losers. So have you heard enough to uh, fill out the application and give us your uh, $200 fee for the, for the year? Do I, have to give, do I have to give any of my limbs or organs? <laughs> no. We'll take a secondhand kidney instead. I hear you have one lying around. <laughs> this is optional, Jason. You don't have to do We can go. We can cruise whenever you want. We, we can cruise. Yeah. <laughs> Where are we cruising to? All right. Well, away. clearly Mark and I have some, some issues to work out. So maybe the next meeting we'll have some sort of new agenda. And, and I hear we'll, uh, we're going to invite some nuns in here just to have a real challenge to work for. From. You monsters are already uh, half, whether you admit to being objectivists or not, are, are really almost there. Your affectation is slipping, Alf. Let me just say that. <laughs> Sometimes it's in my interest to pretend I'm from Britain <laughs> somewhere else. Sometimes. Ah, it's convenient. From, Very convenient. Australia. <laughs> I mean, I'm starting to wonder who Alf really is. I mean, like, you know, accent slips, name changes. This whole thing feels like a grand deception, like I've been lied to. 
Mm-hmm. Just depends yeah. what's what's uh, the talented Mr. Rand. And Mark, <laughs> in another eight months when you turn 24, maybe you'll the scales <laughs> will be lifted from your eyes. With Alpharon, I might not even turn 24. You might eat my face off before then. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to be here anymore. We, we need to yeah. end the yeah, scene. Yeah, we're done. We're done. <laughs> yeah. We can stop there. Uh, okay. So apologies to anybody that has either has an affection for objectivism or wanted to know anything actually about objectivism. Apologies <laughs> to both of you. We uh, managed to skirt both of those. Uh, that was difficult. Have you had some objectivists on the show? Yeah, we had Mike Humor on the show, who I think does sincerely think that uh, Atlas Shrugged is a really good book. He described himself as an anarcho-capitalist. He's okay. the only guest who Jason's ever agreed with as well. But there is some crazy objectivist stuff. So it comes with a whole <laughs> lot of weird metaphysical views, and she was a very strange character. and It's more of a religion than a philosophy. But I think there's elements of it that I really like. So free market capitalism, I'm a big fan. Okay, fair enough. Well, I felt I should bring it in just because it is a view like her arch enemy Kant that has a very strong view of rationality of what rationality tells you that it is only rational given the kinds of creatures we are to be self-interested, which doesn't mean never cooperating with other people or, or eating them or, and she does believe in law and order existing in a society. That's all very Stop. rational. You're, you're pulling your punches here, Alf. <laughs> let's, let's. Let her have it. But yeah, strangely enough, the person she most attacked was Immanuel Kant that we've talked about before, who himself had a different version of actually our existence as autonomous creatures means that just reflecting on the structure of our wills gives us a notion of more, a strong notion of morality that says, right, what if everybody did this, you know, so I should only do the things that could at least logically make sense and, or to be desirable to be a law for how everyone acts. And that's how she saw the structure of reason. And Ayn Rand saw it a different way. And I think they're probably both wrong that as Mark and Jason were describing to start with, reason just gets you from some premises to a conclusion. And it doesn't necessarily, if, if you want to say, well, it's, it's irrational to have these goals in the first place that has to be well, because if you look deep within yourself, you're going to find you actually don't have these goals, right? You have a survival instinct. You have a innate compassion. You have something that is non-optional in your value system. And so I can argue it's irrational for you to want this other thing because if you really had self-knowledge, you, you know, if you, if your knowledge was complete, again, this is going back to your initial point, Bill. If your knowledge was complete about what it is to be a human, then you would acknowledge that, you know, we do have fundamental responsibilities towards each other or whatever it is you're supposed to argue. I think what's quite attractive for me about the free market capitalist position is that they're arguing that the only essential rationality you, you need, the only essential desire you need in order to make society work in a very functional way is the desire to further your own ends and not caring about anyone else's ends. And I think what's so useful about the free market capitalist solution is the idea that you can construct a far better society than any one in which people have empathetic, altruistic desires to help one another purely by allowing everyone to pursue their self-interest ruthlessly. And that's the claim. And it's such a bold claim. It's so interesting. If there's even a chance that it's right, then that's going to be the way to construct your society because it doesn't require any of these additional empathetic beliefs, which only some of us might have. My ding, and it's not just for anarcho-capitalism, but others, but anytime we have a, a philosophy that starts, you know, if we all just dot, 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 it's like, that ain't never going to happen. We're gonna, there's going to be 300 and 
25 million people in the United States alone. Not sure how many are in South Africa. Well, if we all just, you're never going to everybody to agree on anything and any philosophy or political or economic system must realize that we will constantly be debating and figuring out and there will be people who hate it. There will be people who are irrational and people who think it's stupid without thinking about it. There'll be people who think it's awesome without thinking about it. And that's certainly something we're uh, struck with today is, uh, oof, at least in this country, how easily irrational people can be with very, very little. And it does not take much ill will uh, <laughs> from a not so nice person to suddenly grasp the attention of many, many, many people. I don't trust humanity enough that we won't have evil and it won't just come up, especially when we got 325 million people and one person's aggressive self-interest magically becomes a bunch of other people's self-interest. I'm sorry. That'd be, that's why I want to push back, Jason. Oh, no, but I agree with you. Human animal is far too complicated. I took what you were saying as agreement. So all I'm saying is you don't need anyone to be altruistic to make it work. You can have everyone. Will be altruistic. Oh, but that's great. That's just a cherry on top. So in other words, I'm just... No, that's not a cherry on top. They will lose. They are fools. They are bad. Well, okay, then. (laughs) You're saying part of society is bad and part of society is good. People will be altruistic. You can't turn that off. Well, yeah, no, sure. Some people will be, but the point is you can run society with or without that altruism. They will lose. If the society rewards aggressive self-interest, then the altruistic person will lose. Which is fine, you might say, if if the point is, as I think Jason was arguing, that what makes a stable society as a whole. Like, it's okay, and probably it's necessary in many pictures to have losers. If we get to pick the losers, well, then that becomes a big philosophical debate. Who should lose and who should win? We can't just sweep that under the rug. You know, back to the trolley problem. What segment of society should win? What segment of society should lose? And when you start talking about the tremendous rainbow of people out there with the tremendous beliefs and thoughts and feelings. Clearly the improvisers should lose. <laughs> yes. Are, what, way ahead of you. We're reaching the point where now, uh, Mark and Jason, you've been exposed <laughs> to this, this kind of madness in the way that this man thinks this bill with his shiny pate. And his, his vitriol. Come on now. Come on now. At, hey, hey, I got it. You I, said you I, guys I were receding. like, we, we, get, we get confrontational. I mean, you literally, <laughs> I am go- <laughs> playing by the rules you all set out. As opposed to my willingness to adopt your accents, my personability in all ways, that is the model of, of philosophy. I think you should come up with your answers independently and then re- <laughs> reveal them because I don't want, I don't want uh, one of you to be influenced by the other. Have you made your decisions in your minds? Yeah, I'm okay. ready. Jason, have you made your decision in your mind? Which one? Don't say it yet. I've got it. All right. <laughs> Speak up, Mark. So I think it's a very important thing in society to have a court gesture around so that you can sort of deflect from all the madness and give us this sort of room where you can explore kind of wild, crazy ideas. And so the court jesters strike me as the philosophers. And uh, we're useful, you know. Unlike these damn comedians who come around with their improvisational bollocks, <laughs> I do think you have a great insight though, which is that we do live in a world where there's just a variety of different interests. And so one insight that you have that's totally correct is don't assume everybody's the same. Having a totalitarian system is going to be a terrible idea. So having one that allows for this variety of ways of being is going to be quite useful. 
And anarchism tends to allow for that. And free markets tend to allow for innovation in all sorts of different ways. You can have competition, you can have a variety of ways of being, and that's going to lead to human flourishing. Although I, I do think that people were probably pretty funny in the Soviet Union, you know, uh, when they were in the gulag, <laughs> where the comedians belong. I think it leads to actually oppression. Well, stop there. <laughs> Clearly, if the rational, a rational society, then, you know, everyone should act with peak rationality. Everyone should act the same. Totalitarianism is probably a, necessary to enforce that. So, uh, you know, following <laughs> Plato, yay totalitarianism. That's what philosophy tells us. Jason, do you have a, a final verdict here? Yeah, I think the philosophers win. I just want a world full of Tuvoks and uh, everyone to just sort of chill. Um, so be ultra-rational. And I think being ultra-rational is funny. So Mark thinks that uh, the philosophers are jesters. Um, I think the philosophers are funny, but in, in a way that's sort of an ironic way. They don't know they're being funny. There's definitely a bull somewhere laughing at them. Yeah, philosophy wins. Fine. That's okay. I would hope that even if the explicit attempts at humor failed, that someone is laughing at our expense. That's, that's <laughs> all I would hope that they get out of this podcast. Yes. There is both the content and the creation. And those two can be seen through different lenses. Thank you, Lenses, for uh, visiting us today. We appreciate your bifocal presence, your bivalence, your... Uh, Bisexuality, frankly, and uh, thank you. That, that came up pretty quick, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having us on the show. <laughs> yeah, an absolute delight. All right. So long, everybody. Thanks, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the show. To learn more about Philosophy versus Improv, go to philosophyimprov.com. Make sure you're subscribed directly to the Philosophy versus Improv podcast feed, even if you're listening to this somewhere else. Or better yet, use one of our supporter feeds, which you can learn about at philosophyimprov.com slash support. Listening that way will remove all the ads, give you post-game chatting with me and Bill and usually our guests for nearly every episode, supporter-exclusive bonus discussions, and if you support us through patreon.com slash philosophyimprov, you'll see links from most of our recent episodes to the unedited video experience, which is objectively better than just listening. Thanks! You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.